Welcome to Just Us, a podcast about racial reconciliation and justice. Our theme text comes from 2 Corinthians 7, 2. Make room for us in your hearts. Today's topic is we're going to be looking at two important terms that help us understand the racial reality and issues of our day. Sundown Towns and Green Books. We release new episodes on the first of every month. You can find us wherever you find podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. And we ask that you give us five stars and subscribe. We'd love your feedback, comments, and questions. You can find us at washingtonconference.org slash podcast. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Amen. So we're going to start with John Brunt as he describes an aspect of his childhood hometown and talks to us about sundown towns. What are sundown towns? Well, they are municipalities where people of color were not allowed to reside, but not only that, they weren't even allowed to be within the city limits after sundown, thus the name sundown. These began back at the end of Reconstruction, 1890s, 1900, and lasted officially up until 1968 when the Federal Fair Housing Act passed. However, the passing of that act did not mean that all these towns immediately held out a welcome mat for just anybody to come. So they extended on beyond that official end in 68. They were scattered all over the country. The Northeast had a lot of them, the Midwest, the Northwest, here where we are, the West, and, um, well, for instance, just the state of Illinois had over 500 of them. So there were many, many sundown towns across the country. Now, in some cases, they were official, where there were actually laws on the books that stated this. In other cases, it was unofficial. The way they communicated that they were a sundown town also differed significantly. In some there were actually signs at the city limits, uh, very unwelcoming signs, I might add, in many cases. Others had symbols rather than signs. One of the symbols that let people know it was a sundown town was a black mule, for instance. Some towns had alarms. There was a town in Illinois, for instance, that put a big alarm up on top of their city water tower, and it went off at six o'clock every evening to signify that all people of color needed to be out of town. Others, it was simply unwritten, and everybody knew it. The enforcement was different. In some cases, it was simply by intimidation. You didn't dare stay there, uh, and the intimidation could become quite fierce in some cases, even to the point of uh, not only cross-burning, but burning down homes and lynching. In other cases, the enforcement was official with the police. Now, the city I grew up in, Glendale, California, as far as I know, didn't have any signs. At least I never remember seeing any. But everyone knew it was a sundown town, and the police enforced it if... Uh, person of color was in town after sundown, the police would stop, they would pick the person up, 
and they would drive them to the city limits, either to the east or the south, at the city limits of Los Angeles, and drop them off there. Couldn't go to the north because that was the mountains, and couldn't go to the west because that was the city of Burbank, which was also a sundown town. And the fact that these sundown towns existed created all kinds of opportunities for discrimination. For instance, in the city where I grew up, there was a large city swimming pool. It's where I learned to swim. There was a sign when you went in by the cash register where you paid your money that said, open to residents of Glendale only. Now, they never cared whether you were from Glendale or not. Nobody ever looked at your ID when you walked in to see if you were really from Glendale. You simply paid your money and you went in. However, since no people of color could live in the city, then if a person of color walked in, they could say, well, you're not a resident here, and they would be denied entrance. So it opened up opportunities for discrimination, not just in swimming pools, but in education, in employment, in various government services, and so forth. Uh, this was not a secret, by the way. In fact, a lot of these towns blatantly bragged about being sundown towns. It would be in their promotional work. Uh, there's a city in Illinois that's name is Anna, A-N-N-A. -N -N -A. They drove all people of color out in the early 1900s, and then for decades they advertised the fact that A-N-N-A -N -N -A stood for Ain't No N-Word Allowed. Um, another city actually had a promotional brochure for the city, and it said it was a great place to live, because it had seven churches, two public schools, one academy, one sanatorium, an ice-packing plant, and no saloons and no inward. And all the way up into the 50s and 60s, there were real estate developers that would advertise that this was an all-white development. If you want to know more about them, there is a very good book by a man named James Lowen, L-O-E-W-E-N, called Sundown Towns, A Dimension of American Racism. It has lots of detail. He has been criticized by some for having so much of his material rely on oral uh, accounts, but he defends himself by saying most things were oral rather than written down and he's done a lot of interviews with people. There's one very interesting uh, thing in the book. It's under note one, a link that you can click on to a website he has, and it gives you a map of the United States, and you can click on any state, and it will list all the sundown towns that were in that state, and then when you click on a town, it will give you the dates and the, the specifics and generally some anecdotes. And you can click on a state and see what cities uh, that were a part of your history that were actually sundown towns and when they were. Now, it's been 52 years since the Fair Housing Act. And so that's before some of you were born. And um, that could mean we're just talking about ancient history here. But I think we should talk about 
what kind of effects these have had, and do we see uh, legacies from sundown towns still making a difference in our world today? I think that'd be a good place to start talking about these. Incidentally, John, my mother grew up in Glendale, California, mm -hmm. so I have roots, um, sadly, I have roots mm -hmm. in that sundown town as well. So, so how do you see this uh, affecting us today? Well, maybe somebody else wants to start with that. I have some ideas, too. I, well, in my lifetime, growing up in, you know, spending a part of my teenage years in, in Brooklyn, New York, I don't know if it would be called a sundown town, but there were certain parts of the city where people of color just wouldn't go for those same reasons. And, and it um, comes to mind a young gentleman, a teenager named Yusuf Hawkins, 1989. I remember I was this, uh, in high school in Brooklyn and he went over to um, another part of town, which is predominantly white town. Um, I don't remember if it was Howard Beach or I can't remember the name of it, but he went over there to check on a car. Um, and as he was leaving, it was getting into the evening hours, he was leaving, um, some, I would call the rabble rousers across the street saw him, okay, leaving in their town and went after him and beat him to death for just being there. And that sat with me for a long, 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 long time because it could have been one of my brothers. We all lived in New York, you know. Um, they didn't want him there. He didn't belong. I don't know if they've done that in broad daylight, but that wasn't the first incident that has happened mm. while I lived in Brooklyn about people being in those wrong neighborhoods at the wrong time. You know, so that stayed with me for quite a while. Well, you know, I think the history of sundown towns lent itself to that kind of uh, violent action because if you dehumanize people as other and consider it a threat for them even to be around, why then it naturally leads to violence in, uh, well, I grew up about two blocks from Glendale High School. I didn't go there, I went to a, a private school. But before I was born, actually, this happened. Um, the Glendale High School football team had a game with a team from Pasadena at John Muir High School. And it ended up that the John Muir team had an African-American on the team. And they beat him to the point where he had to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that kind of thing happened much more. Mm -hmm. We know about that incident because uh, the football player who uh, got beaten up grew up to be one of the most famous athletes on the planet, not in football, but in baseball. It was Jackie Robinson. Yeah, yeah. 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 wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I have a question. Um, when you were speaking, what, what, what stood out to me was um, the signs that you were speaking of. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the signs you said was a black mule. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what's the origin behind that? Well, it's not a nice origin. They, the, the expression that it was supposed to represent was don't let your black ah. three-letter word <laughs> be in this town wow. after dark. Yeah. I see. Got it. That was very clear. Mm. Wow. That's interesting. And you know, we think of this as ancient history, but no, as late yeah. as mm. 2006, not that many years ago, 2006, a major manufacturer in the United States 
was building a new factory. And they could not say, of course, that they wanted an all-white workforce. That would not be legal. Mm -hmm. But they decided to build their factory in a town that had historically been a sundown town and still, as of the 2000 census, had no people of color in the city. They built it there. It was 50 miles from a metropolitan area and the nearest people of color. After they built it, they made a rule. They said they wanted their workforce to live near the facility that that made for better employees. So they made a rule that you had to live within a 35 mile radius of the factory in order to work there. And so that ensured them an all-white workforce without them having to say that that's what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So the legacy of those sundown towns lives on. Mm -hmm. I wonder what this did to the soul of America in the mm -hmm. sense, um, you know, you think of hospitality is, is, and welcoming people is, is a Christian virtue. And to have communities where to, uh, enforced to the point of violence, um, certain people were not welcome. You wonder what, there had to be people who knew this wasn't right. And there had to be shame, generational yep. shame, yeah. right. in the sense we're not living up mm -hmm. to the Christian, because America has a strong Christian. What do you think this did to the soul of these communities to behave like this? <sighs> oh, well, we're seeing that now that America has no soul. Um, for especially looking from a, a, a Christian perspective, where's the soul of the church in these instances? You know, right. how did they embrace those people who are disenfranchised and marginalized like that, or chased out of town at six o'clock in the evening? You know, who was there to welcome, you know, welcome them back or welcome them in? Um, and and to me, it, it seems like there was a deterioration long before then for this to be allowed to happen, you know? Um, and I don't know that it's healed. Right. I, I don't know if it will, the, the soul of America, can we reclaim it? Um, what can we do to not let these kinds of things happen, um, you know, to people who lived in places like Glendale at the time or in Illinois and Anna, Illinois, or, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Like, this, what happened to the soul? It deteriorated. It rotted. Yeah, unfortunately, even Christians have quite an ability to rationalize and justify. And Ooh. we can see that easily yes. as we look in the past. It may not be as easy when we look at ourselves. Right. But I, I suspect that there will be a time when people look back at us and are, are just as... Uh, um, Chagrin, you know, as we are. But my, it was Chagrined. within the churches yeah. that they tried to defend from the Bible that Oof. blacks and whites were supposed to be separate. Mm. And that, uh, it, yeah, it, it mm -hmm. was, uh, and of course, even slavery was justified, was justified mm -hmm. from the Bible. Um, yeah. So it was, it was not mm -hmm. that this went, uh, you know, it was from something outside the churches. This was supported and defended mm -hmm. by church people. But why do you think they 
did that? Why do you think they felt the need to defend those kinds of actions? Because you can't take certain scriptures out of the Bible and just use it to fit your or to suit your lifestyle or your, your belief. A lot of us have done that in the past. Sometimes I have. And then you have to go back and rethink your philosophy. What does the scripture really mean? What's before and what's after? What does the context of the scripture mean for our lives? But I don't understand up to this day why that was a lot, why people put their societal standards over the scripture because it seemed more important um, to say faith with society than with God. And I just, it, it baffles me up to this day, people are defending the actions of um, an innocent black man being shot dead or his, you know, and, and well, what if, why didn't he just comply or listen to the police? And they're defending this. Um, and the Bible tells us clearly that is not, you're supposed to love your neighbor and do unto others as you would want them to do to you. And, and, but people are a but, 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 and they're defending these actions. Right. So I just don't understand that. I think it's to um, just the misunderstanding of scripture, right? That's basically um, what it is. People. Is it misunderstanding all- or blatant disregard? I really believe uh, either, right, right, right? I don't want to defend anyone, but um, people take scripture, and if it fits if it fits for them, they take it, right? Yeah. So, oh, I'm going to worship on this day, so this is for me. Or I'm going to take X, Y, and Z because it fits for me. So um, within, within that concept, um, hence why you could have a, a racist theologian argue um, there should be separation of, um, of races, right? Or there should be separation of X, Y, and Z, and slavery was biblical and stuff like that. So I, the misunderstanding of scripture um, illuminates that, that ideology like, okay, we are doing something right when we're actually doing something wrong. That's how I see it. And I wonder, um, mm. I wonder if bringing things into the light that's why I think it's important to, to talk about these things. It's uncomfortable to talk about them. Um, I love America, and I'm, I'm embarrassed. This is part of our history. Mm. But if we bring things into the light, um, th- there's, a, there's a phrase from the, the uh, 12-step program. It says, our secrets keep us sick. Mm. That's and nice. so yeah. if we bring things into, into the light, and if we... Um, if we realize, and because and, like you said, John, some of this was just the oral tradition. It wasn't spoken because people would be embarrassed if this was openly spoken. So I wonder if one step towards healing is bringing it into the light. Sure. Mm-hmm. Then we can say, okay, that wasn't good. Right. Let's address it. Let's move on and let's be healthier as, as people. You know, when I think about biblical interpretation and uh, how people see issues like this. I'll never forget a conversation that I had. This would have been in 1984, so it was a long time ago, with a black pastor in South Africa in the middle of apartheid. And I was there doing some teaching. He was one of my students. Uh, He came from a country near South Africa. I had students from about nine different countries. Um, And I remember him asking me after class one day if he could talked to me about a biblical question he had. And his question was whether people of color were under the curse of Canaan, which was a, uh, 
you know, a, yeah. a biblical uh, idea that mm -hmm. a lot of people use to justify racism. Wow. Yeah. And of course, I mean, I'm supposed to be a biblical exegete, so I sit down <laughs> with him and I show him how that's absolutely not true, that that interpretation is totally wrong. And I show him several reasons why it's totally wrong. I'll never forget, we ended the conversation and he said, well, it looks like you're right, but I'm still not totally convinced because I don't have any other way of explaining how terribly we're treated. Mm. Wow. wow. The actuality of that. That's yeah. the reality he's yeah. experienced. Because apartheid wasn't too different from, you know, the civil rights movement, Jim Crow and all. It, it, it wasn't. In some ways, even worse. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I, I have uh, um, two comments. Um, the first one with what you said about bringing it to light. Um, and I, I definitely agree with that, Bill. Um, not only bring it to light and uh, make it known, but also dismantle uh, the system that continue that continually, uh, I guess, what's the word? Hold that oppression, that, that system of oppression. I think that's what we definitely need to do. Bring things to light and then dismantle it and rebuild something better. And um, the second thing I would like to say is, since you grew up in that, right? I want to know more about it. Like, how how was that for you with the Sundown Cities? Did you have like black friends that actually, if you were playing with them, you had to they had to go home or like? Can you give us more about well, that? Well, as I mentioned last time, I didn't because there weren't very many blacks in town. I didn't have black friends up till I got into academy, and then there were and had some really good friends. But um, it, it came with a friend of mine who had an African-American maid. And I can remember being at the house. Uh, I mentioned this story in a sermon a few weeks ago, and one of my classmates from years and years and years ago uh, gave me a Facebook message and said, oh, I remember being in that home at the same time. And wow. the thing I remembered about that maid was that when she made us sandwiches, she always cut the crusts off, and I really liked that. Um, <laughs> But I can remember the uh, husband in the house coming in one night and saying, my, I've let you stay here too long. Usually she took the bus home. He said, you're, you've been here too long. You're not going to be able to get out of town in time, so I'm going to have to drive you home tonight. Um, but I will admit that growing up until, and I mentioned last time, a teacher when I was about 13, 14 years old really started opening our eyes to what was going on. It was almost as if, you know, it was something that existed somewhere else and we just mm. didn't even think about it. Wow. Nice. Okay. So what would we say to someone who said that was really unfortunate, shouldn't have happened, but we're in a different era now and that's illegal? What would we say? What, uh, you mentioned the, 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 the factory, but are there any other residual effects that are with us today of sundown towns? Well, you know, I think one thing that we have to look at is attitudes. Mm -hmm. uh, have they changed? Mm -hmm. Well, they have. But they're still a lot, they still have a long ways to go. Uh, 538, you know, the outfit that does presidential predictions now and has been doing research for years, uh, had an interesting piece of research where they showed, uh, well, they asked the question of white in America, if they thought 
it was okay to discriminate on the basis of race in housing? Is it okay to refuse to sell your house to someone because of race? Mm -hmm. In 1980, 66% said yes, that was okay. So two-thirds of people. Mm. In 2000, it had gone down to 40%. In 2015, which was the latest uh, record of this, it had gone down to 27%. But that's still more than a fourth of whites in the country who think it's okay to discriminate in housing on the basis of race. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Hans and Mimi, do you mind if I, uh, if, if I ask? Hearing John describe this reality of sundown towns, um, like I said, my mother grew up in Glendale. Mm -hmm. um, so I can hear about it and I can say, well, that, was, that wasn't the way God would have us be. What is it like for you hearing John describe that? Well, it's upsetting. It's um, disappointing. It's, um, I don't know, it is embarrassing. Mm -hmm. uh, because... People aren't, you know, we're not, this is not who we're, we're called to be. We're not called to be, um, you know, separate because the way you look or the way I look. Um, we're called to be separate from sin and worldliness, but we're not called to be separate from one another in that way. Um, and it kind of reminds me of um, how we're supposed to be when I think about, you know, Acts chapter 2, that, you know, the latter half with the, the community of believers and how they fellowshiped with one another and uplifted one another. And, you know, how they had, they put their resources together and they welcomed people who were outside of their, you know, their lines. They, they welcomed them in to fellowship with them, you know, and, and they dwelt together. And, and this is just not the way we were supposed to, to be. I don't believe that at all. And, um, I think a lot of people use the Bible to, um, they use the Bible to, to speak to what they think is right. And when I visited the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., I did see those slave Bibles. And it's incredible what they've done to pick out and pick and choose um, verses to keep people oppressed. And that's not what the Bible is about. And I think we've just fallen very, very, very short you know, of what's required of us. Uh, I would say um, hearing about this, uh, it's, it definitely dawns on me um, how, let, let's say humanity does its thing, right? But when it comes to Christianity and how Christianity let these things happen, mm. it dawns on you like, yo, if we as so-called Christians should be the body of Christ, right? And we supposed to be all loving and all caring, yet we fall in the same thing as what the world is doing. It's crazy how we let that happen. And we treat each other the same way. Um, and I feel like it still lingers till this day, you know? Um, I could tell definite stories, but that, that, that falls on the um, red line, and so I'll just wait for that. But um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's very, it's daunting to the fact that we 
those who are supposed to uphold the values of Christ allows these things to happen. And if we still if we're reading the same Bible, what do you not see? Or what what is it that you're not seeing that how if Christ came to this world and well when he came to this world, he put everyone on an equal playing field. He did. So it's 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 daunting. He uh, so so we're gonna transition, but I wanna before we do that, um, is there scripture that comes to mind that that kind of lifts up our minds above the rea- the the reality or the philosophy of of um, sundown towns? I think of the one where in John one where it says the Word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came from heaven, a very elite community, and moved into um, our community. So heaven's philosophy is not, okay, a sundown town exclusive. You can't come in. Heaven wants to open the doors, and, and that's what Jesus is about. Anyone else, any, any uh, scriptures or something like that? One thing that comes to mind for me is the Sabbath commandment, not in Exodus where we usually read it, but in Deuteronomy 5, the second giving of the law. And there it talks about the reason for keeping the Sabbath being that we were slaves in Egypt and have been liberated and set free. And then it talks about how because of that, because we recognize that in Jesus we were all slaves who have been set free, we are to open the door to the stranger, even the foreigner in our gate. And when Sabbath comes, we're supposed to let them rest just like we do because they're on the same plane as us. We are all equal when we remember that we were all slaves. We have all been set free by Jesus Christ. And Mm -hmm. that means Mm -hmm. everybody is a brother and sister. Mm. Wow. Yep. So um, we're going to transition. So Hans, tell us about the Green Book. All right, I got a story to tell. Um, <laughs> um, so let's 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 bring it back to <clears throat> let me let's, let me make it personal. Um, so in nineteen let's say ninety seven, right? Nineteen ninety seven. Um, my boys and I. Uh, okay, when I say my boys, is <laughs> I'm not. I don't have any kids. It's nineteen ninety seven. One. Two uh, is the lingo that we use. My boys mean like close friends of mine. So whenever I see my boys, yes, no kids, none of that stuff till this day. Um, so my boys and I, we were just talking, and we was talking, and we were very close. And um, we was like, yo, when we get older, we're going to rent an RV and go on cross country, right? And that's one of the things that we wanted to do. And my boy's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. Um, like, we had to have the big RVs with the beds and yada, yada, ah, 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 all that stuff. So that was, the, that was the, the, the goal. And it's still the goal to this day. Um, so I know everyone loves, like, cross country. Well, not, not, let's not say cross country, but road trips. Certain people love road trips. Mm-hmm. If you have the best person um, for the road trip, you like it, right? If you're driving with certain people that you like, you have the person that's on shotgun that has the music and people looking out mm-hmm. if you speed and so the cops don't come get right, you. Like right, the, People right. love road trips, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually kind of love road trip if I'm with the right person. Yes. Um, so let's just have that, mind, that mindset. It's like road trips are fun. And the reason road trips are fun is because you see different places. You see, so when you go to... 
uh, certain stops, you just go outside, take pictures of this monumental moment or wherever it is, this, this attraction. And another reason people would love road trips, or what I would love road trips, you stop at different restaurants and you can eat whatever this, these people, uh, um, whatever, uh, whatever you like to eat or these new kind of fancy foods. That's one of the things people like about road trips. And um, what's another thing? Oh, and, and if you're in road trips, you would want to stay at like the fanciest hotels if, you, if you're that type of person, if you're bougie, you know what I mean? Um, you want to stay at the fanciest hotels, like five stars, ah, like, you know, everything is just catered to you. These are the reasons certain people love road trips. So, now let's paint a picture. Like in 19, the early 20, 19, like yeah, the, the early 1900s, um, let's say 1920s, people would start going road trips, the uh, highways, mm -hmm. Were, were created and um, people could do cross-country road trips, stop and take pictures, um, stop and get something to eat, stop and just do things, get some souvenirs, you know? Uh, that was good, that was the American dream around that time. Having the ability to own a car and not only own a car, but go cross-country and stop and just see the world, see America. Right, because the highways were built and everything was nice, um, but that wasn't the American dream for everyone. You know what I mean, and that's what the sad part was because although black people did own vehicles, African Americans did own vehicles, but they didn't have that luxury to stop mm -hmm. and see and have the benefits of what white people had, and that is heartbreaking. Why? I'll tell you. So um, around the, 19, uh, the early 1900s, uh, well, let's just say mid 1930s, 1950s, um, jobs were good, uh, people were owning motor vehicles, and everything was seeming right. And as I told you, for white people, right? So it couldn't be the American dreams, it's the white American dream, because um, black people at the time, they, they had their money, they had their businesses, some, some businesses, and they also had vehicles. But the thing is, when they were going um, to road trips, they couldn't stop, right? So they couldn't stop to um, get these nice fancy foods or stop and take these fancy pictures or stop even at hotels. And uh, that is mind-boggling because if you're going on a road trip, you need to stop for gas. You need to stop if you need to use the restroom. You need to stop if you're hungry. That's right. Right? This is, this is, this is things that we, 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 right now, we don't really think about, but back in the day, what? It, it, was, it was hard for black people to stop because if they stopped, not only would they be... Um, Let's uh, uh, been, been, be cursed out or called the N-word or whatever the case might be, they could actually die. Yeah. What? Just to stop. So um, certain gas stations was only whites only. Restaurants, white only. Um, even attractions, if, if the police would see you even trying to take a picture um, next to uh, certain, certain, yeah, so certain nice attractions, memorial places, you could be stopped and beaten to death. Um, and so this, this guy named Victor H. 
Green, Victor Hugh, um, Hugo Green, and he decided, he worked at, yeah, this was 1932. He worked at a post office. And then after he started working at a post office, he realized that all of these things black people could not do. So he, what, he, what he did was, uh, he, he, he still worked on the post office. However, he became a personal traveler agent, right? Just the simple fact to see where black people could go. So he created um, the Negro Motor Vehicle Green Book, short in terms, the Green Book. Uh, I know a lot of people seen that movie and it is a good movie, but if you go in depth with it, mm -hmm. I think you should. Um, you will see the, the hidden truth about that. So he, he, he created the Green Book, he published the Green Books, and what he found was fascinating because out of 100 motels, black people could only visit seven, including restaurants, mm. including, um, like if they, let's say your car stops on the road, certain places black people can't go, and all of this thing. So he, he created this green book because at this point, um, black people started getting killed and all of this, this devastation just for stopping somewhere. Um, so as, 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 as we know, like when you pack, when you're going on a road trip, you pack certain things or pack light or heavy, however you want to call it. But back, black people at that time had to pack extra. So they had to have extra gasoline in their car. Um, they had to have mm. uh, places, um, extra food. Even sometimes the food was, was spoiled because, right. you know, the right. heat and all that stuff. Yep. Extra food, but they still had to eat it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's, um, so they had to pack that extra pillow so they could sleep on the roadside, if anything. And um, uh, uh, canned food, that's what they would use to use the bathroom because they can't stop at gas stations. Mm -hmm. to use, like Stuff like this. Um, so uh, Victor Green did this Green Book in 1936, which were, where it was published, and every year it would update um, to see where else black people could go, but out of 100, only seven they could land. Um, so this point, uh, the Green Book actually helped certain black people say, okay, so we can't travel this far, because if we travel this far, things will happen, bad things will happen to us, we will lose our lives just, just for traveling. And it's not as if they didn't have the money to stay at the hotels, I mean motels at that time, no, they did. They had um, finance, it's just that at this point, uh, in their lot, well, in America, they could not. And it's heartbreaking, mm -hmm. to the point that even Martin Luther King, in his favorite I Have a Dream speech, spoke about the Green Book, and I, and I don't want to butcher it, or, um, yeah, I don't want to butcher it or paraphrase it, so I'll read it to you. Uh, it's, it was, it says, we can never be satisf satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of unspoken horrors of police brutality. That's still happening today. Mm -hmm. Then he continues and says, we can never be satisfied as long as our bodies heavy with fatigue of travel cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the city. Mm. <laughs> and Victor Green, he, he worked and worked and published and published. And one of the progressive gas station was Esso. Right now it's called um, Ex 
Exxon Mobil, mm-hmm. they helped um, Victor spread his, uh, his, his book, the Green Book, so people could actually, black people could actually be safe when they drive, and black people could stop at um, Exxon Mobil to fill up their tank. So they really did, uh, they were progressive in, the, in their time. And um, in 19, what, the civil rights, 1963, that's when the, the, the Green Book became obsolete because now the, the civil rights happened and people could come together. So that's great news, right? That's mm-hmm. perfect news because that, think it that, is. Means, that means nothing yeah. happens anymore. Right, right. But I have another story to tell you. I hope I'm not taking too much time. But um, in December of 2017, one of my boys, again, that's one friend, one of my boys, he, uh, what was it? He, he wanted to move to Seattle. So he's from Boston. He's trying to travel from Boston to Seattle. And he was driving with his brother, his twin brother, and one of the, another close friend was helping him drive. So they was driving. They was doing this long drive from Boston to Seattle. I wouldn't do it days. That's a long trip, right? So, um, he was doing this trip. He, he was getting tired. They were staying in um, uh, hotels, you know, doing their thing, taking pictures, uh, 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 all that stuff. And then when they got to Montana, when they got to Montana, they got tired. And they wanted to uh, stay at a, a, a hotel, a nice hotel, too. And so they stopped. The boy, they, they, well, the friend that was in the car that was helping them drive because there was two brothers and a friend, three people. The friend went outside and went to the hotel to you know, just check in. And the lady was extra nice. Hello, how can I help you? Do you need a room to stay? This is about 2 a.m. in the morning. So that's, you know, like throwing out the red carpet for this guy. So they, um, she, he was like, yes, I do. And then my boy and his brother walks in to the door and at the moment they walk into the door, the lady sort of um, just go- caught their eyes. And he asks the friend, is, are these guys with you? And he goes, yeah. He goes, and then she goes, we have no more rooms. Now, the, the nice person who she was with, you can only imagine he was a white man. So it was just like the whole red carpet, 2017, December, it's cold, right? And that, that whole trip, snow must be in the air, right? And at that moment, he was like, what? There was like, there's a, and she goes, there's a motel down the road if you want to stay in. But right now, we have no room for you. <laughs> 2017, 19, 1963, that's when civil rights, all of that is done with. So we could go in hotels, but no, no, no. It still lingers today. So they go to this uh, motel, and um, as they go to this motel, Discuss the Motel One, and they get poor, a horrible treatment. The same because they're still in Montana. The same kind of treatment down the road. And the lady, it takes uh, 15 minutes to give him a key, throws it at him, and just ends up. The, and, and he ends up going to sleep and doing whatever he did, and just comes to Seattle. And it's just mind-boggling to me that it still lingers till this day. The Green Book was was published in 1936, and yet my friend is still having this treatment in 2017. So that's the story of Green Book. Black people had to have actually a guide to see where they could go so they won't be harmed and they won't die, Mm -hmm. just so they could enjoy 
the American dream. Hans, I have a question. Um, when you see the movie, The Green Book, mm -hmm. it seems to be all set in the South and you yeah. get the idea that this is a Southern thing, mm -hmm. but that's certainly not true, is it? That is definitely not true, and hence why I told that story of my friend. This is Montana, right? Isn't it like three <laughs> states across, two states across, however you want to call it? And it's, it's happening still. It's prevalent still today. And yeah, in the Green Book, you see, in the movie, you see everything is in the South as they go deeper and deeper in the South. The hotels are on getting more grindy and you, it's disgusting, but nah, it's not only the South. So, I, I, like I said earlier, I'm embarrassed that I didn't even know about the Green Book until a year ago. I wonder, before the movie came out, how many people, um, how many white people in America knew about this? They didn't have to know. Um, they didn't have yeah, to know. Right. Exactly, because yeah. why? You're not being oppressed, right? right? Yeah. And, and, and if it may, sometimes, I don't want to take this the wrong way, but I, I feel for them like, okay, they don't know, right? Because they didn't have to go right. through it. But don't, just because you don't know doesn't mean you're not accountable to do correct. something. Absolutely right. correct. I mean... Right. I understand that you didn't you didn't know. I understand that you you didn't uh, um you didn't have slaves or own slaves. I get that, mm -hmm. but yet you still benefit mm -hmm. right. from 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 your ancestors or from generation after generation. You still benefit. Right. You were privileged not to have to to know have a green book right. and not to have to know. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's deep. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Um, I've read that that um, w one of the dangers of the road for um, black people was that they would have to drive straight through and they would fall asleep mm -hmm. on the road, yeah. and because you know you need to stop and rest mm -hmm. when you when you're right. doing when you're doing or or I can just imagine needing gas and like <laughs> okay where can I get gas yeah. um, safely? It, I have to admit it boggles my mind that a country, America, with such great democratic values, we talk so much about human rights, that mm. this was part of our history. And I guess, again, maybe this is another situation of bringing it into the light. So yeah. you, you gave an example, Hans, of, of where this is not just an old story. There's some elements of it. Mm -hmm. Any other, do any of you, the rest of you, have any other uh, connections between where we are now and the reality of green books? <laughs> I, I, don't, I'm, I don't know where we are now. We've lost our compass. Mm -hmm. um, the story yeah. that comes to mind was, you know, um, it's not necessarily about green books, but similar to the experience of people like Hans men mentioned, driving across country and, a f and with the fear of not wanting to stop in certain places. Because my husband is, is Canadian. When I was in college, they would drive to um, Calgary, where he was from. And that was from Michigan to Calgary. And they had to drive through um, Montana, Wyoming, or wherever. And they would never stop in Montana. They would just say, hold it. We're going straight through because these are black men. They were like very good friends. Uh, four of them would mm -hmm. take that trip from Michigan to Calgary. And, you know, mm -hmm. until they got to the border is when they could, <sighs> yeah. they can breathe, you know. Mm -hmm. But they never wanted to stop in Montana, mm -hmm. you know. And, and it's that when you said about your friend driving cross country, I'm like, oh, my word, that. 
And they're Canadian in America. Mm-hmm. You know, but that doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. They're not going to, oh, you're Canadian, you can go on. No, they just see that you're a black. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so that was one of their, um, they would get to North Dakota or whatever. They put all their gas, get all their food, and just zoom through mm-hmm. Montana. Um, I, I don't, it, it just, again, how do we how do we change that mentality? It's a change of heart, but there are so many people who don't want to change the heart. They want to keep things the way they are. What is the fear? What is the underlying fear? Is it a power? What is that? Where green books had to be created and sundown towns had to be, you know, um, created. What, what was that? And I don't know how we can defy that now. Is it too late? And I always ask that question. Well, it, it, it's certainly true that, um, like, like you, both John, you and Hans pointed out that laws were changed. Mm-hmm. But you made a very important point, Mimi, is that you change the laws, there's still ways it can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. When things happen in the dark, the laws don't always reach into the dark. That's true. And so a change of heart. So, you know, we are believers. We're people of faith. Um, what are the principles we can um, hold on to that we can work under to build a bridge of reconciliation, to appeal to our communities and to our country for a change of heart, for God, to allow God to change our hearts so we can be better? Any thoughts? I w- <laughs> That's I would, a hard one. Yeah, it is very hard yeah. because the reason why it's so difficult um, so hard is because, um, Doc, we are believers, right? Yeah. They too are believers. Yeah. So it's just like if if I'm a believer <laughs> and they're a believer, what like we supposed to stay on the side of the ground? But nah, nah, I'm, we don't like it. Kind of the the good old days, we're gonna keep it how it is, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So what then? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like what then? What else is there to do? To, and especially if they have these blinders um, of racism, what then? I don't even know how to answer that question. Because they too believe. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that we need to work to change hearts. Mm-hmm. We have to do it with the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I always think of what uh, John Howard Yoder said in The Politics of Jesus, that uh, Jesus doesn't call us to be effective or to be successful uh, necessarily, but to be faithful. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be faithful whether we're successful or not, recognizing that Jesus himself was not successful uh, with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so we have to try to change hearts, but at the same time, I think we have to try to change laws as well and not rely on hearts because there are people who will never change their hearts and we need to find justice mm-hmm. legally as well. And when you change the laws, it does eventually change attitudes. Like that uh, 538 uh, study I mentioned, we, we're certainly not there yet, but at least over a period of, what, 35 years, it moved from two-thirds, thinking that racial discrimination in housing was okay, to one-fourth. Well, mm-hmm. one-fourth is way, way too many. Right. But if they had not passed the civil rights law, it would never have changed from yeah. two-thirds to one-fourth. And yeah. so 
while we preach the gospel, always knowing that we have to be faithful in preaching the gospel, but we may not always be successful, I think we can't just rely mm -hmm. on changing hearts. We also have to try uh, to bring justice with our vote, right. with our voice, in changing laws as well. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. Because right now we have, you know, an administration where there's a lot of laws that can be changed, but there's individuals who feel it's their right mm -hmm. to sit on them and not get them through Congress. And mm -hmm. because, well, the previous administration did this, so we're going to do everything to stop it. And that was very clear mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so when you sit and you, you, you know, you, you peacefully protest, nothing that we, that has been done to help change laws, right? It seems like it hasn't been effective mm -hmm. because when you want to push something through, nope, we're not, gonna, we're not even going to address it. We're not even going to deal with it because it doesn't bother me. And I think that's a problem too. Yes, we are required to speak out against oppression and injustice. That, mm -hmm. is, re that is as Christians what we're supposed to do mm -hmm. because Jesus did it in so many ways um, every time. He mm -hmm. always spoke um, out against the authorities who had the law right. mm -hmm. because they were unwilling to change it. He came and crushed everything that they believed in, you mm -hmm. know, and let and set the people free. Mm -hmm. And he did that when he was here on earth. And, and we try to do that now, but there's mm -hmm. systems in place, right? And there's like, you like to use the word stronghold, uh, Pastor Bill, Spiritual in pace, in place, yeah. right? Yeah. That grasp that progress and pull it back, right. you know? And when we're in the streets, they say, oh, well, look at them. Oh, well, look at what they're doing. They're tearing this down. They're burning this down. And we want to change mm -hmm. laws, mm -hmm. you know. And if the people in those um, positions of, of authority in our government, in our administrations, are allowing certain individuals to hold that down, mm -hmm. how are we going to progress? What does it take? You know, do we arm ourselves in the streets because that is our second amendment rights, you know, and go storm the government houses. What would happen to us if we did it? Right. One of the things that, that, uh, that gives me hope mm -hmm. is, um, it, it's a very simple phrase, but it, 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 it gives me direction. I can only clean up the garbage on my side of the street. Mm -hmm. right. I can advocate for just laws, but at the end of the day, I can control how I act and I can try to use my voice. Uh, for example, I've had conversations with many people and who tell me, um, you know, there, there isn't much uh, racial problems. It's, it's, it's imagined or whatever. Word. And, and so I asked them, have you ever heard of Sundown Towns? Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of Green Books? Mm -hmm. Most of them never had. And mm -hmm. our next podcast, when we talk about redlining and we talk about Black Wall Street, mm -hmm. again, most, most uh, have never heard of those things. Right. And so I hold on to hope in the sense that as people of faith, our, our theme verse for this podcast is 2 Corinthians 7 2, make room for us in your hearts. Yeah. That if we, if we get a new heart from Jesus, then we can make room for other people and we can care, we can also care about their lives. And so we are so glad that you, are, uh, you have um, been with us today. And as we wrestle with this, as I said, next time, um, we'll talk about redlining and Black Wall Street. And our, again, our goal 
is to work towards racial reconciliation and justice from a position of faith yes. and to bring things into the light and to be bridge builders and peacemakers. Um, if any of you would like to communicate with us, I'm going to tell you the, um, the website. It's Washington, washingtonconference.org slash podcast. And you can communicate with us with questions or things you think we should cover in the podcast. And we will uh, be very glad to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening. And thank you to John and Hans and Mimi and to Ernesto uh, faithfully uh, recording for us. Yes, sir. <laughs> and we will talk to you next time. Next time. Have a good one.